Well, happy Father's Day to those of you dads. Happy Father's Day. What a beautiful day. I read the other day that um, that unconditional love is shown to three people. To moms, to children, and to dogs. And I was like, well, what about the dads? You know? Every time it's Mother's Day, we go all out. All out, right? You know, the flowers, the balloons, the gift, make a big deal, you better make a big deal. And so we go all out. But then it's Father's Day and it's just like, just make them a card, you know? Just make them a card. And so this morning I got a card from my nine-year-old. And so he, he made one, you know, pencil drawing and everything. And of course what's most important is what's written inside. But nonetheless, uh, I was surprised with that card this morning. My wife was standing next to me and says, Daniel, give you know your father the card that you made for him. So he brings it over. And of course, you know, I was so distracted thinking about this morning that I took the card and rather than placing it uh, vertically, I placed it horizontally. And so I turned it and I'm looking at the cover and he had drawn something on the cover. And I looked at my wife and I said, what's up with this? She said, what are you talking about? I said, why did he draw sperm on the cover? She says, turn it around, they're balloons. I said, oh my goodness. I said, you know, I'm just, I was, <laughs> my, my son has a sense of humor, but I thought, seriously, come on. You know, we haven't had that detailed of a talk yet. He's nine. So I have two boys. I have a 30-year-old, a, a tall, burly Looking guy with the beard, good looking guy with the cap. That's my boy, we look alike, they say. And then I have a nine-year-old, Daniel, who is also, he's just a, an amazing kid, keeps me going, keeps me young. I'm blessed with two grandkids, a granddaughter, uh, Emery, and a grandson, Ezra. And I love it. I love being a dad and a grandpa. I just love it. I know you're thinking this guy doesn't look old enough to be a grandpa but I am a grandpa. I love it. <laughs> Every Mother's Day, we have a tendency to read out of Proverbs 31, and it's the virtuous woman. And of course, when anyone is asked, you know, when, when, when a, an, an, an older uh, woman in the Lord is counseling or trying to mentor a young woman in the Lord, she will use Proverbs 31 as a blueprint and say, this is what a godly woman looks like. And of course, you want to translate it to more, a more contemporary translation so you understand it. And so that is the blueprint. But then the question is, what about men? What is the blueprint? Of course, the answer is always, you know, be Christ-like. But if we look at Psalm 1, and uh, my father, my dad, highlighted this for me a long time ago. He said, this is the blueprint. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in, the Lord of, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And so it's like a conditional statement almost. And so if you do the first part, you know, blessed is a man who, and all of those characteristics, then the consequence, somewhat like a conditional statement, is that you will live a long, prosperous life, and whatever you do will prosper, you will not wither, you know, you will live a good life, basically. 
That is the blueprint for all of the men that are here today. Some of you dads already, some of you potential dads in the future, some of you young men growing, eventually you will become dads. And so this message is for you. This message is for you. And uh, I will also interject a little bit there and I'll talk about the women. But for now, it's going to be about the men. So the focus as a parent, and I'm speaking to you as my perspective as a dad, uh, I've been a dad, like I said, for 30 years now. And, uh, and, and, and my perspective has always been that my kids not necessarily go to the, you know, the, the, most, the biggest colleges or an Ivy League school or that they would have the fastest car, the biggest house, that they would be you know, serial entrepreneurs and do great things in that arena. My goal has always been that they would always strive to get closer to God and to lead them in that direction. And so when I see my 30-year-old taking his children, you know, his family to church, leading them in prayer, living a, a godly life, a life above reproach, just being a wholesome dad who's loved by his wife and his kids. That to me is a pat on the back. And I see that and I go, Milton, you've done a good job. And, and I do, and I, you've done a good job and it's all been because of God's grace. And so my focus is not that they would become popular, wealthy, or attend the best universities, but that my life, would cause them to thirst and hunger after God. That's it. That's the only goal. And Rolf Waldo Emerson said it this way. He says, your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And so sometimes we preach, 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 but at the end of the day, 75% of the impact of our kids is what we do. What we do. So our kids are always, always watching. Believe me, they are always watching. And so... John, the apostle, said in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. Amen? And so a dad is supposed to provide four securities. Four securities. Now, make a note of this, please. Four securities. Spiritual security, emotional security, physical security, and financial security. Those are the four securities that a dad ought to provide his family, especially his kids. There's a video that pops up every year around Father's Day, and it's a young lady who's participating in a contest. It's a master chef contest. I believe she's Brazilian. And she's cooking, and they're videotaping this whole thing. You know, she's live. She's cooking and competing against some other chefs. And their families are over there on the side. Well, her father and siblings and mother are standing there. And so the young lady, which was very petite in stature, she grabs the jar that she's supposed to open and pour into the, into the pan, and she can't open it. It's too hard. And so she immediately runs over to her daddy and gives it to him and he just pops it open and gives it back. There was a certainty and a security that she knew that dad could do it. She knew. She didn't go to mom. She didn't go to the siblings. She didn't go. She went straight to dad. You see, according to scripture, dads ought to be teachers. They should exemplify the love of Christ. They should provide for their families. They should spend time with their children. They should discipline their children. They ought to be compassionate. Never give up on their children. And they should pray for them earnestly and constantly. That is the role of a father. Now, when you ask a dad, what is your priority? And you ask a mom, what is your priority? Moms will say at the top of her priority pyramid, she'll say that who is most important? Her kids. When you ask a dad, what is your most important priority? They'll say my job. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, you're so insensitive. No, no. Men are wired to be what? Providers. Women are wired to be nurturers. And so that doesn't mean that that's okay. 
for women to say, well, at the top of my list are my children, on top of his list is work. At the top of everyone's list, we should have God. And so, and, and it goes back to scripture. You know, God says, I'm a jealous God. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. It's God first. It's God first. Now, let me tell you, the power of a dad. Now, I don't want to minimize moms, by the way. I want to preface by saying this. I respect and love each and every one of you. But I have to say that God, that men's influence, dad's influence on their children is so much more exponential. Ah, you're probably going to hate me, but that's okay. But I'm just speaking the truth. Dad's influence on the life of a kid is so exponential. There's one thing that just irks me. And you're going to hear about things that irk me throughout the service, okay? You ready? I'm here to teach. Is that okay? Okay, all right. There's one thing that irks me. Father's Day and single parent homes, moms, either the husband left or they divorced or something happened, and they will post, Happy Father's Day to me. Is there something anatomically different about you that I don't know about? Because as far as I know, a mother can only be a mother. A father can only be a father. When I widowed at age 35 and when my wife passed away and my son was 15, someone came up to me in the church and said, well, now you're going to have to be mother and father. I said, I can't be mother. I can never offer my son the nurturing that a mother can only offer. I can't do that. I can only be dad and I'm going to do my best at being dad. And so that being said, you can only be dad or you can only be mom, but you can't be both. The power of a dad in the life of a child is unmatched, it's unprecedented, it's unequaled, and it's unrivaled, and it's only superseded by God's love. That's it. Amen. One hug from dad is worth 20 kisses from mom. Don't hate me. Who we are as dads speaks of who our children will become. Amen. Who you are, dad, is what your son will become, and who you are, dad, is who your daughter will marry. And now you're thinking, oh my. 75% <laughs> of you in this room have married your worst parent. I'm serious. I've done a lot of research, done a lot of counseling, done a lot. 75% of you are married to the worst parent in marriage counseling or marriage coaching. I'll ask them, who's your worst parent? She'll say, my dad. Who's your worst parent? He'll say, my mom. I'll say, does your husband resemble your father? Yes. Does your wife resemble your mother? Yes. You married your worst parent. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, because your mom was the loudest or your dad was the loudest. And so that's how you were programmed. And so you gravitate to whatever was the loudest, whatever required the most attention, good or bad, that's what you gravitate to, and therefore you married your worst parent. Your son will become like you. They'll marry someone like you. And so you have the power to impact your children. Men, I'm speaking to you. You have this innate power to impact the lives of your kids for good or for bad. You either bless or curse. You lift them up or you tear them down. You fill them with hope or you inundate their minds and their hearts with despair. That's just the way it works. It's either one or the other. One or the other. Now, according to a U.S. census in 2018, 2018, listen, 
In 2018, the U.S. Census revealed that 19.5 million children lived in fatherless homes. 19.5, and let me just tell you that the numbers have increased since. They're in the 20 millions. Fatherless homes, fatherless homes. In other words, I want you to also understand, let me just define what a fatherless home looks like. It doesn't simply mean that the father has left. It means that the father can be sitting in a lazy boy chair and he's left. In other words, he's there, but he's not there. He's there, but he's absent. He is, he is incorporeum. He's in the body, but he's not in the spirit. He's gone. And so there is no security, no financial security, uh, spiritual security, physical security, or emotional security provided by the father. And so he's absent, fatherless homes. And they're the homes where the dad has abandoned their children and they develop a sense of neglect or a spirit of rejection. And so then these kids grow up and now they try to have their spouse suffice the needs that were not sufficed by the parents. And so they become infant adults. Some of you married one. Oh, everybody got quiet. Okay. All right. Empirical evidence suggests this. Empirical evidence suggests this, that fatherless children are more likely to develop behavioral issues. Milton, would you please help my child? He has ADHD. No, he doesn't. There's dysfunction in your home. You're messed up. I don't want to deal with the kid. I want to deal with you and your husband. Oh, but he's not willing to come. That's the problem. He doesn't want to come to counseling. That's why your marriage and your whole relationship and your family's messed up. Well, he's had ADHD. No, he's not. He's got emotional issues because there's a fatherless home. He doesn't need Ritalin. He needs love. Amen. Fatherless children are more likely to develop behavioral issues, aggression, depression, low self-concept, four times greater risk of poverty, two times more likely to suffer from obesity. Girls are seven times more likely to become promiscuous and become pregnant teens. Fatherless children are more likely to go to prison. The majority of the males in prison today come from fatherless homes. They are two times more likely to drop out of high school and more likely to commit crimes, become drug users, and commit suicide. Fatherless homes. I've yet to deal with someone that came from a fatherless home that had a successful, blissful marriage. Yet, I haven't. They come because they have issues. Why? Because no one showed them how to be a man. No one showed them how to be a father. And so, example, I was at a halfway house. I've used this example before. T.W. Naram and I were at a halfway house, which we'd go to on a Sunday evening, and halfway houses where prisoners just straight out of prison go to, get, uh, to become rehabilitated and then go back into society after several months. And so we would ch take chocolate cake and Dr. Pepper and would lure these people in. They were some ugly looking dudes, okay? I remember there was a guy who was bald-headed and had a demon tattooed on the back of his head. He would just turn it around and do this to me like this, you know, every time I was preaching the gospel. And so T.W. would preach the basics of the gospel he would do the Roman road to salvation out of the book of Romans, of course, and I would focus on Romans 12, 2, which is don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't be like the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and improve God's perfect, pleasing, and good will for your life. And it was like, okay, there is a renewing of the mind that could take place that's going to lead you to transformation. There's scientific proof behind it. It's called uh, neuroplasticity, 
And in, in uh, theology, we call it Romans 12 too. God says, renew the mind. And so God created science. Science just corroborates what God says. Easy, right? Okay. So I would go in there and I would have these guys, about 18 of them, who would sit there in that room, a dingy, dirty room on, a, on an old, uh, old furniture. And it was a really bad situation, but we'd go in there, brick hope. And I would ask these guys, who was your greatest influence in your life? They said, all of them in one accord would say, my father. Then I would ask them, is that influence negative or positive? In one accord, they would say negative. And then I'd ask them to choose a qualifying adjective so that they could describe their dad, just one. And then they would say, can I use a cuss word? And I would say, if that, if that, you know, if, if that makes you feel better, go ahead. And when I would hear what they had to say, my heart would break and I would have to hold back the tears because it was just terrible. Because I grew up in a very functional home with a very loving father who's almost 80 and continues to be my greatest role model. And so it's really hard to understand how someone could go through the things that they went through. But then I would ask them the last question. It was a very pivotal question. Did your parents ever tell you that you would end up in prison someday? The answer was a resounding yes. Yes. The father's words became prophetic. And it was generational because the father came from a messed up home and his father came up from a messed up home. And you just go back in the bloodline and you see that there's mess up after mess up after mess up. And so it just carries down to the next generation. As a father, as a Christian father, you must have the mindset that your first ministry is your family. Forget about going out and preaching the gospel in the streets and standing on 10th Street with a, with a poster board that says, Jesus saves. Start in your home. That's where you start. If you can't lead your home, you can't lead. If you can't minister the gospel to your own family, don't go out into the world and try and do it. Start at your house. Proverbs 22, 6 says this, train up a child. Okay. And he goes on to say in the way he should go, not in the way you think he should go or she should go, in the way that God says he should go or she should go. Train up a child in the way he should go so that when he is older, he won't what? Depart from it. Okay. All right. Depart, you know, to lose vision, to, 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 to stray away. That's depart. To spiritually die. And so, the problem is, men, is that you want to train up your child. Now, remember, it's child. It's not teenager, adolescent. It's child, and there's a reason for that, and I'll explain a little later. Child for a reason. It doesn't say train up a teenager. Train up a child. What you did, you did. What you didn't do, you didn't do. But the problem is, men, that you can't teach what you don't know, give what you don't have, or guide someone to a place that you've never been to before. Before you become a teacher, you must first become a disciple. Amen. Let me repeat that again. I, I think some of you, it just went over your heads. You ready? Let me say it again. You can't teach what you don't know, give what you don't have, guide someone to a place that you've never been to, because you must first become a disciple before you can be a teacher. And so the question is, are you a disciple of Christ? See, the problem now, this is for the ladies. Ladies, are you ready? You ready for a word of encouragement? All right. <laughs> Nikki knows where I'm going with this. <laughs> There's a big word in psychology today. It's an ugly word. Which, by the way, I've mentioned before that I study human behavior, and my doctoral thesis is adverse childhood experiences, in other words, child abuse, and how those children turn into uh, individuals that develop autoimmune uh, diseases in adulthood. 
Graves' disease, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, diabetes, uh, chronic arthritis. Uh, there are just a, a multiplicity of different ailments that they develop. Because they suffered from adverse childhood experiences, then they develop. So when com someone comes into my office and says, I'm suffering from depression, but I, have, I also want you to know that I have Hashimoto's, then my question is, what was your childhood like? Let's talk about your mom and dad. Well, I'm taking medicine for Hashimoto's. Well, that's just a Band-Aid. Let's talk about where you're coming from. Can you get healed from it? You can get healed from it. Let's deal with the root. And it's a process and it takes time. You know, I have Graves' disease, Crohn's disease. I always tell people, if you're C-type personality, if you're, if you're contemplative, calculated, analytical, if you're that type of personality, introverted, on the rational side, I always tell them you probably have Pepto pills in your pocket. You have Tums or, or Rolades. And you have migraines, back pain, muscle spasms, and your gastrointestinal system is screwed up. True or false? And they look at me and go, do you know my doctor? <laughs> no, but I'm getting to know you. Everything is connected. So here goes the big word in psychology. Emasculate. Someone said, ooh. Yep, it's, a, it's an ugly word. By definition, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's to deprive a man of strength, vigor, and to destroy his spirit. So here's what happens, is that we have these young men that are in their teens, hoping to become 16. Now back decades ago, uh, a young man would uh, long to become uh, a young adult so that they can enlist in the army and serve their country. They wanted to protect their nation. Today, a young man wants to turn 16 so that mom can drop him off in his skinny jeans, flip-flops at Starbucks and drink his Caramel macchiato. <laughs> and he's proud to be known as a mama's boy. Now, the problem is that those mama's boys, they grow up and they become young 20-year-olds, and they're still dependent on mom. That's a problem, because now you have adult uh, infants. And those adult infants, because they come from a home where mom is overbearing and dad is absent, and I tell young ladies who come to my office for coaching, relationship coaching, and they say, I'm dating a young man. Can I tell you about his personality now that you know my personality and tell me if we're a good match? Now, there's this idea that God chooses who you're going to marry. That is not true. It's not even scriptural. God gives us a free will. If you're at the right place, you will find the right person. But if you're downtown at the clubs, you're going to end up with the wrong people. So... I tell these young ladies, is your husband, you know, what is he like? I don't ask, what, what is his personality like? What I ask is, how are his parents? She then says, I'm not marrying his parents. I said, yes, you are. Because who they are is who he will be. And so then you say, well, dad is not really there. He's a great provider, but he's never home. Mom is overbearing. She kind of, you know, rules and reigns. She's very dominant. And I say, Run. Run. It doesn't matter if the guy's good looking or has got money. Run. Your life is going to be miserable because he's an adult infant. He depends on his mother. He didn't have a father. His father didn't show him how to be a man. And so now he's become a sissified young man. I got a little bit of a chuckle in the first service. You left. <laughs> Did y'all get it? That was good, right? Okay. I hope you got it. Here go two books that I highly recommend. This is for dads. If you have boys, the book is called Wild at Heart. It's written by uh, John Eldridge. Wild at Heart. It teaches you that 
You shouldn't freak out when the little boy's at the dinner table or, or breakfast table and takes his toast and carves out a pistol and starts shooting. Don't freak out. That doesn't mean he's going to grow up to be a serial killer. What it means is that he's a boy and he's wired to be wild. And if you trump that wild spirit, you're going to mess him up. You've got to channel it. You've got to channel it. Wild at heart. And for moms that have boys, there's a book called Mother and Son, written by uh, Emerson Egerich, who wrote Love and Respect. Highly encourage you to read it. So how do moms or wives, here goes this for the wives, emasculate their husbands? As I said, it's stripping them away from their manhood. The, 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 the more horrible word is, can I use it? Is it okay? Castrate. Castrate. And so then again, now you have these men that are walking behind their wives. In Spanish, we call those perros falderos. <laughs> which would, the translation would be skirt dog, which is kind of weird, but anyways. So here's, how, here's what happens. Women will withhold respect from their husbands. They will keep repeating things like, you're so childish, and he's 45. She complains about his job and how how his salary is so low and how she makes more, maybe a dollar more an hour than he does. She mistrusts his ability to handle things on his own. She asks him for help, and then she says, by the way, this is the way you should do it. You nag him or you boss him around. You treat him like he's a Neanderthal with no feelings. You compare him to your ex-boyfriends, you offer him unsolicited advice and you criticize how he spends his downtime. The poor guy came home, he's sitting on the couch, he's wiped out, he's worked all week, and you go and you say, you're so lazy. Because that's the way you were trained. Because you saw your mother do that. Or you saw your father abuse your mother and you don't want to be your mother. So now you want to be the abuser. You set up a wall, that's your coping mechanism. It's a maladaptive behavior. Maladaptive behavior, mal meaning bad, bad adaptive behavior, maladaptive, and it's wrong. And so now you're emasculating your husband and your son is watching this happen. And so he's learning that he needs to be submissive and find himself a woman who is dominant, otherwise he'll be lost. That's what emasculating means. It's something that is happening in our society today. I have, did you remember I said, I'm going to tell you things that irk me? Here goes another one that irks me because I see, the, I see the psychological ramifications behind it. After the Me Too movement, when was it? 2018, I think it was. After that, there was another hashtag that came up, and it was Boss Babe and Boss Lady. <laughs> that irks me. Whoever, if, if that's your mindset, if that's your mindset, you have no idea how much damage you're doing to yourself, women, with that type of mindset. Because it flips... Was that a woman or was that a man? <laughs> a lady over there in the back. Thank you, sister. You have no idea how that flips the switch in your mind. I'm not saying that women are supposed to walk behind the husband, but alongside the husband. The Bible calls women, amen. The Bible calls women, the Greek word is paraclete. And the word paraclete is only used for two people in the Bible. That's for the wife and for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, which means perfect help. The wife is to be the perfect help. Lock arms, walk hand in hand. How can two walk together if they don't come into agreement? So they have to come into agreement, walk with a vision. That's how it works. 
One doesn't walk in front of the other on top of the other. They walk together. That's what it should look like. And so I want you to really think about it. If this is you, I had a, a, a lady who walked out the first service. I kid you not. She shook my hand. She says, thank you for that word. She says, I'm going straight home right now, and I'm going to go ask for forgiveness. She says, because I am that woman that you talked about. She says, I've stripped my husband away from his authority. I've stripped away his role as a leader. I've forgotten that he has been set as the head of the household, as the priest of my home. I'm going home right now, and I'm going to ask for his forgiveness. Powerful stuff. Amen. Some of you are putting that on your reminders right now on your iPhone. <laughs> Go home and apologize. As we talk about, now I'm going back to men again. So go back to men. You only have a window of opportunity to impress your children. And your window of opportunity is 0 through 11. You become the trainer or the coach. Men, I'm speaking to men. You become the trainer or coach. When a, when, a, when a wife, when a woman, a mom does not have a husband because he disappeared or something happened or she widowed, I always say find a, real, a male role model that is, is godly that can impress and impact your son's life because he needs it. A boy needs that role model. He needs to learn how to be a man. He needs to know that. He needs to learn. When I watched my son, when he was, when he was dating his now wife, uh, I remember watching him at 17 years of age open the door as she was getting in the car and he closed. And I said, son, I said, gosh, I love seeing that. I said, that touched me. I said, why? You're the only one doing that. You know, I don't see any other guys. I said, where did you, why do you do that? And he says to me, I watched you. I watched you, dad. Kids are watching. So, you have this time, you have 0 through 11 to be the coach, the trainer. You can tell them what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But then when they hit 12 through 18, you become the counselor. You can suggest, sweetheart, if you're talking, you know, to your sweetheart, I suggest that perhaps if you change, you know, your, your, the way you're dressed, you know, might be more appropriate, you know. I, I, I suggest, son... I, I, if you cracked your books open a little more, maybe you would study more. Maybe you would get better grades, you know. So you become a counselor. Now you give them a little more dependence. The success of a father is when your children become independent of you and dependent on God. That's the success of a dad. I'll say that again. The success of a father is when the child becomes independent of him and dependent on God. And then you have from 19 on. If you've done a good job and uh, uh, there's a, a brother in the church that I just met a while ago. His name is Artis. Artis was going out, and he, he comes over and shakes my hand. He says, brother, I love that word. He says, he says, my son, and I think he said his son was 19. He says, my son is 19 years old, and he comes to me, and he says, Dad, I need your advice. He says, so I, can I give myself a pat on the back? I said, brother, not only can you, I will give you a pat on the back too. Great job. So if you've done a good job the ver first two phases of that child's life, then that third phase will come automatically. Well, they will come to you and say, Dad, like that girl in that show, open this jar for me. Dad, I need your help. Dad, I need your advice. Dad, I need your protection. Dad. That's only if you've done a good job. If you haven't done a good job, what they're going to do is they're going to run and find someone else. Now, let me just, uh, let me go back a little bit to what I was saying a while ago about, you know, being maybe a, a more dominant wife, a little more overbearing and creating dysfunction in your home when the husband and the wife just can't, 
get along and there's dysfunction and dad is absent because he doesn't want to be there. And then mom, because she's frustrated, she becomes overbearing. Then these kids, because of the dysfunction, dysfunction leads to distortion and a distorted identity. And so then they come to my office and they say, I'm having identity confusion. I'm having gender confusion or gender dysphoria. And it's like, I have, I have a medical issue. No, you don't. You have a familial issue. It's a family thing. It's because of the dysfunction in your home. And so you always go back when you see someone like that, and you can always trace back the high dysfunction in their home. And so that's what that breeds. And so a child, when the child comes to you, they're going to ask three questions very subconsciously. When I say subconscious, what I'm saying is you don't think about it. You don't think about it. Actually, when you meet someone for the first time, you have these th three same questions that will pop up in your subconscious mind in less than a fraction of a second, and this is what you ask. You ask these three questions. I believe I have them up there on the screen. You ask, do you care for me? Can I trust you, and can you help me? Those are the three questions that your little boy, your little girl is going to ask about you, Dad. And it's all going to depend on your body language first, because if you're on your phone like this, and they come up to you for advice, and you can't get off your phone, then you've lost them. Literally, you have lost them. Or if you're too busy with, amen. If you're, I, I hope it's not the women that are clapping. But if you're too busy on your remote and the kid comes up to you like that, ask those three questions subconsciously. Do you care for me? Can I trust you? Can you help me? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, boom, you connect to their hearts. You connect to their hearts. Now you can guide them by the hand. But if the answer is no, no, and no, you've disconnected. And if you keep on doing that, they will disconnect forever and ever. Parenting is not easy. Being a man of God is not easy. Can I hear an amen? amen? It's not. It's not easy. You have to avoid telling your children who they are based on your failures, based on your traumas, based on your hang-ups. You have to stop telling, well, son, you know, no one in the family ever went to school. I'm sure you're not going to go to school either, you know, just learn, learn something, you know. You know, you know, in the family, we're all diabetic. Uh, you're fine right now, but when you turn 25, you're probably going to, you know, you're going to show signs of diabetes, you know. Your dad, your grandpa was a drunk, you know, who knows, well, on, on your mom's side, of course, so, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> stay, stay away from alcohol because, you know. Can I just tell you that there is a genetic predisposition? Amen. They discovered this 25 years ago. There's a genetic predisposition for alcoholism, for abuse, for aggression. <laughs> they even want to throw in unfaithfulness somewhere in there too. There's a, there's a genetic predisposition. But you know what? The Bible told us that a long time ago. And the sins of the forefathers shall be carried on to the what? Third and the fourth what? Generation. Okay. So... Avoid telling your children what they will be based on you. You have to start calling the things that are not as though they were until they become what God has called them to be. Let, 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 let me repeat that last part so you can, you can hear with the, the, the little tale into it. You have to start calling the things that are not as though they were until, until they become what God, what God has called them to be. 
And you do that for your children. You do that for your spouse. You have to sow those kinds of seeds. But if you sow seeds of defeat in their hearts, don't expect them to ever walk in victory. They're always going to go through life throwing themselves a pity party. And that may be you, and maybe you go through life with a pity party. Well, I'm telling you today, it's time to stop and allow God to come in and to start healing your heart. Amen? There are three things, there are three things that children need from dad. Get ready. Here goes. Ask yourself this question. You might think all they need is money. Actually, I kid you not. I had two young men in our school, very wealthy. Dad had his own private uh, jet. He had a helicopter, would, would, would ride his helicopter to work. There was a big building here in McAllen. He had his office there, very wealthy. And I remember telling him, this young man was in the sixth grade, and he was talking. Some, one of the kids said, man, hey, we heard that you have a helicopter. That's really cool. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, it is cool. He says, but I would trade everything that I have for one thing. I'll never forget. Made me cry after the fact. He said, if I had my father. He says, my father's never there. All I want is my dad, his presence, his hugs. So here are three things. Children need words of affirmation. Proverbs 18, 21, the power that we have in the tongue, the power to bring life or death. Words of affirmation number two. Children need physical touch. Jesus healed through touch. Jesus always had that point of contact, always healed. They need, they need that embrace. Usually when a kid is going through something, their cortisol peaks. And when you bring them in and you give them a hug, their cortisol goes down, the oxytocin goes up. And so you go, the, the stress hormone decreases, the love hormone increases. And that's what they call it, the love drug. And number three, they need active love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of what? Sin. I want to end with the life of David. If you know the life of David, uh, everyone does. You know, everyone pretty much knows that David wrote most of the Psalms. David wrote Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everybody knows he was king, that he slayed Goliath, all these things. We have a tendency to forget all the, the mess ups in his life because we highlight the good stuff. It's like because, you know, he's, we have that image. We went to Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, you remember the picture of Goliath and David and him slaying him with a stone. And that's really cool. But when you look at his life and you go back all the way to when he was a young teen and he was out on the hillside and he was shepherding sheep and goats, he was doing what slaves did back in the day. In other words, you would not send your children to do that work. I mean, that was, there was a law back then that if a shepherd fell into a pit, you did not have to rescue them out of the pit and nothing would happen to you. You could let them die because they were like the scum of the earth. And so here's David shepherding sheep while his dad and seven kids are inside the house. And so Samuel, the prophet, is summoned by God. Now, keep in mind that during that time, Saul was king. Now, Saul had been chosen by the people, not by God. He had been chosen by the people because the people were so insistent. And he said, okay, choose somebody. So they chose Saul. Saul started out okay, and then he, he, he went wayward real quick. And he messed up. And so he calls Samuel, the prophet, and he says, you know, put, put some oil in, in, in your horn and take it to Jesse's house because you're going to anoint the new king. Jesse was David's dad. He says, go over there. He says, I have chosen, this is what God said, I have chosen for myself a king. He says, I chose him this time. Not the people, I chose him this time. And so he goes over to Jesse's house. 
knocks on the door, and out comes Jesse. Now, Jesse freaks out because he sees the prophet. Now, there's a reason the prophet is, is visiting you is because you've messed up. Something is up. So he's, he's, he's afraid. But then he says, hey, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm here to anoint the new king. Call your boys in the room. And so he's there, and I can only imagine that he comes, all these, these, these boys come in, and I'm thinking that he's probably thinking, surely it's going to be the firstborn, the oldest. Now, the firstborn was a tall, very priestly, very royal-looking young man, strong, well-groomed, with a pedigree, very nice-looking guy. And so we had the first one, and the second was pretty much the same, and the third and the fourth, all the way down to number seven. And so he goes back, and he starts with number one, and he's, I'm guessing he's kind of looking up and saying, okay, God, is this the one? And God says, no. He's floored by that. He's like, I thought it was the firstborn. God reminds him, remember, I don't look at the outside of man. I look at the heart. And he's, he was there. God was there not to anoint. God sent him not to anoint uh, character qualities or skill or talent. He had sent him there to anoint a heart. That's what mattered the most. And so he goes one at a time all the way to down to number seven. And God says, no, he is not the one. And so he's baffled by, you know, what's going on. And he looks at Jesse and he says, hey, Jesse, he says, do you happen to have any other kids? Jesse hesitates, kind of thinks for a moment. And he says, yeah, yeah, but you don't want that one. That's David. He's small, skinny, weak. He's a shepherd boy. He's woolly, unpedigreed, smelly. He's uneducated. He says, bring him in. Because until you bring him in, we will not sit and have dinner. And so he brings him in, he calls him out, and David comes over. And I'm guessing that the heavens opened up and a light shone upon this guy, saying, this is my anointed one. And so right there and then, he opens up his horn and he puts oil on him and he anoints him. Now, David was anointed that night, but he didn't go from anointed to appointed until about 20 years later. It wasn't like he went and took took position, you know, in, in the kingdom as king. It was, he went from anointed to appointed like 20 years. And so David had to be in tune with God. Keep in mind that in the Psalms, he talks about how he was rejected by his father and rejected by his siblings. He talks about it. He goes on to say, because his suffering was so deep and profound that he says, like the deer pants after streams of water. In other words, he's saying, just like deers who have been running that are thirsty, he says, oh, my soul longs for you, oh God. He was hurt. Had he not had God when he was out there shepherding sheep, playing his instruments, singing, while his brothers were criticizing him, thinking that he was a little feminine, that maybe he was a little weird, but what he was doing, he was having a conversation with God. And that's what sustained him. So now we fast forward. David goes from anointed to appointed. So now he's king. And he's been through trials and tribulations. Now he's king. And David, because he wasn't taught how to be a man. His dad didn't teach him. His dad rejected him. So now he has a spirit of neglect. A spirit of rejection. And so leadership, he has a hard time handling leadership. Leadership gets to his head. 
And if you know the story of Ziglag, he didn't, it didn't happen until Ziglag many years later when, when, when his men, his men, very own men, his, what were they, 600 men were talking about stoning him to death because of his poor leadership. And the Bible says, and David cried until he could cry no more. He suffered. But then he went off and it says that David found strength. He says, encouraged himself in the Lord his God and in him he found strength. And so David is going through stages in his life and leadership gets to his head. His dad didn't show him how to be, how to be a, a, a man. So he's learning on the way. There was dysfunction in his home. Now, if you read Jewish tradition, and I won't get into that, but if you read it, Jewish, the, the, the Jewish people have this belief of why Jesse rejected his own son and why his brothers hated him. There's a reason. There's a whole story. That is not there in the scripture. This is something that they write in their books. And so fast forward, David is up on a, on a rooftop. His men are at war fighting the Philistines. David looks down an open window and he sees a woman who's bathing. Her name Bathsheba. And he goes, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> if he had been Mexican, he would have said that, right? Ay, ay, ay. And he sees Bathsheba, and he tells his men, tell her that the king is summoning her. So you know the story. Bathsheba comes over to his chambers. He gets her pregnant. It turns out that Bathsheba, her husband, is Uriah the Hittite, his first commander. He's the one leading the men against the Philistine army. So now David doesn't know what to do. His dad didn't teach him how to be a man. He's taken someone else's woman. Now he's in a mess. And so now he brings Uriah the Hittite and says, hey, you've been out there at war way too long. You need to drink some, get a little tipsy, lay with your wife. She needs you. He says, Lord, but how can I, knowing that my men are out there risking their lives? That was a leader. I can't, I can't do that. And he tried to convince him many times, and Uriah the Hittite said no. And so David resorts to very terrible decision. He sends Uriah the Hittite to the front lines. And as he does that, Uriah the Hittite dies. So now he's a murderer. So David not only is an adulterer, he's taken someone else's wife, he's unfaithful. Now he's committed murder. And so now David is suffering because the baby is born and the baby is dying. And he's received a word from Nathan. Long story short, the baby dies. David grieves, David cries, David suffers. No one taught him how to be a man. So he moves, we fast forward. And now David has children and they're older. And so he's living in the palace, he's still leading, and he's got Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. Tamar is female. His brother, her brother, Absalom, they were blood related. And Amnon was a half-brother. And so Amnon lured his sister into his chambers, telling her that he was sick and that he needed food. She brought him some food, and while she did that, Amnon took Tamar and raped her. And so now in the king's home, there's been everything. He's been unfaithful, he's been adultery, he killed somebody. Now his son has raped his daughter. And three years later, after concocting this big plan, Absalom puts together a plan and sends men and they kill his brother, Amnon, for having raped his sister. So now there's death in the family. 
talk about dysfunction. I mean, what kind of leadership is that? I mean, as a leader, you would be completely distraught. And so then all of a sudden, Absalom says, man, I've really messed up. I killed my brother. Word got out. Everyone knew. So now he flees. So now his son has left. And he has put together a militia, a revolt against his father, and he's trying to dethrone him. He's like, I'm going to take your spot. I mean, when your children rebel against you like that, ouch. But you know what? David continued to love that kid. And after a long time of David hiding and covering himself and having men watch over him, and, and Absalom is out there doing his thing, the Bible says that Absalom had long flowing hair. There's a reason I'm mentioning that. Kind of like your hair, brother. Well, you know, flowing, you know. <laughs> and so the Bible says that he was on his horse or donkey, whatever it was, and his hair got caught in a tree. And so David had given an order to his men, to his commander. He said, bring Absalom to me, but don't hurt him. Capture him, bring him to me. Maybe I can, you know, amend whatever is, is, is going on in his heart. Maybe we can make things better. And so he goes out there. His commander sees that Absalom is caught in a tree and does what he wanted to do. He was so enraged. He was, he was so faithful to his leader, the king, that he forgot about the king's words, salvage his life. And so he sees the opportunity and he drives three arrows through his heart and he kills David's son. So now he's lost another son. And so the word gets to the king and this is 2 Samuel 18.33 as I'm kind of wrapping this up. Word gets to the king. 2 Samuel 18.33 says that the king was stunned. When David heard the news, he was stunned to find out what had happened. Heartbroken, he went up to the room over the gate and he wept. I mean, throughout the Bible, David has cried a lot. As he wept, he cried out, Oh, my son Absalom, my dear, dear son Absalom, why not me? rather than you, my death and not yours. Oh, Absalom, my dear, dear son. David's dysfunction brought distortion and calamity and curse upon his home. The interesting thing is that God calls him a man after his own heart. There was one thing that David always did. David always showed a humble and contrite spirit. He would repent and wouldn't do, go back and do that same thing over again. He would repent and God would forgive. But I want you to notice something. The consequences are still there. The consequences are still there. You can live a very unhealthy life for 30, 40 years and then accept Christ and then develop heart failure 10 years later and you ask yourself, what happened? The consequences are still there but it's how you confront the consequence which makes the difference.